I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Elise. How's it going? It's going so well today. How are you? I'm also doing wonderfully. I'm really excited to introduce you to two people that I have encountered online and who you have not met yet. No. And for our conversation today. Yes. Do you want to tell the listeners uh, who we're talking to and what about? I do. So today we are talking to... Dr. Trevor Buffoni and Dr. Danielle Rosevalli, who are two Shakespeare scholars, and they are currently working on a book called Yossified Shakespeare. They are also Shakespearean TikTok scholars, which is where I first encountered them and their work. So they specifically study how Shakespeare intersects with the millennial and Gen Z aesthetic of Yossification, including interpretations of Shakespeare on TikTok, and we'll get into some of that today. So here's a little bit more about Trevor and Danielle. Trevor Buffoni went viral in 2019 and hasn't looked back. His work using TikTok and Instagram with his students has been featured on Good Morning America, ABC News, Inside Edition, and Access Hollywood, among numerous national media platforms. His work as a social media expert has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, Forbes, The Atlantic, and NPR. Trevor has published two books on social media and popular culture and has two forthcoming books exploring theater marketing on social media. Oh, and he does the Shakespeare thing too. 
He is the co-editor of Shakespeare and Latinidad and is currently co-writing a book on Yasified Shakespeare. Danielle Rose Valley is less cool than Trevor, but hoping to someday attain his relative level of awesomeness. She is a fight director, actor, dramaturg, and director, and is an assistant professor of theater at the University of Buffalo. Danielle is primarily a Shakespearean and has written one book on Shakespeare as an economic value, co-edited a collection about what liveness means in early modern theater, and published articles about Shakespeare, labor, economies, and social media in journals such as Theater Topics, the Early Modern Studies Journal, and Shakespeare Bulletin. She's currently co-editing a journal devoted to exploring issues of Shakespeare and contingency and co-writing a book about Yossified Shakespeare. And now, on to the episode. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Trevor. Hello. Hello, hello. How are you doing today? It, uh, it, so May is a fraught <laughs> time for educators. <laughs> I know. I've got three days of school left and I am hanging on by a thread. I, I turned in my grades this morning, so we're we're okay, but awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Courtney, how are you doing? I'm doing well as well. Yeah. I'm very excited to talk to both of you about Yassified Shakespeare. And your recent article. Um, so yes. first things first, we ask everybody who comes on the podcast, what was your first experience with Shakespeare? Or how did you first Shakespeare? So I have a confession. I always hated Shakespeare. And so my first experience with Shakespeare was the same as many high school students in the United States where I hated it. I just remember these boring readings in class of Romeo and Juliet, Midsummer Night's Dream, The Tempest, you name it. And I just could not connect with it at all. And then fast forward a bit, you know, in the meantime, I would try to see Shakespeare. I would go, you know, I've seen all the stuff. I've seen them all, or I haven't seen all of them. But I would try to you know, see plays and eventually I would like one and it never happened. And then about six years ago, seven years ago, uh, one of my friends directed Richard III in Houston, Texas. And I saw it like five times and it just like something clicked. And for the first time, I felt like I got it and I understood it. And since then, I've just kind of been on this on-ramp to Shakespeare, if you will. I know I, I edited with Carla Delegata, I edited Shakespeare and Latinidad, which is a book uh, with Edinburgh University Press that looks at Shakespeare adaptations that are remixed with Latinx theater, if you will. And that was a great experience. And now we're I'm with Dr. Rose Valley with Danielle, and we're talking about Yossified, queer, super pop culture, Shakespeare stuff. And it's been so much fun. And so I've went from this place of hating it to loving it. So that's fun. I also had that journey. So like, obviously, like my first exposure was very similar high school English class, didn't like it, didn't understand it. But like when they sit you down and say, read this play, I think they do the greatest disservice to these texts because they're not plays that you can read with an untrained brain. Like it's actually, they've done studies. Your brain needs to make certain neurological pathways in order to understand the sentence structure of Shakespeare because it's not the sentence structure that we're used to in modern English. So you know, was like, this is, this is terrible. The famous family history story is that I wrote an essay over like summer reading when I was in high school about like how Romeo and Juliet is like the worst play ever. And it's all about, you know, social Darwinism. And my grandmother was very adamant that no child in her sphere would grow up hating Shakespeare. So she took us to see Shakespeare performed I grew up in New York on the eastern side of the state, um, and we went out to the Berkshires to Shakespeare and Company and saw a production of Comedy of Errors, and I had that similar aha moment, and fast forward several decades, at a certain point, I, I trained as a professional actor, I worked off-Broadway, and at a certain point realized that contemporary theater just wasn't doing it for me. I wanted to work on classical theater, so I did a lot of training, including back with Shakespeare and Company, where I had this aha moment, and someone I was training with asked us that same question. His name is Kevin Coleman. He was the head of education at Shakespeare and Company for years. And I told this story, and I saw his eyes kind of light up. And he was like, you know, I directed that production. <laughs> so yeah, it, it all came full circle. And, you know, we all cried a little. <laughs> I love that. I actually didn't know any of that. Yeah. <laughs> I got like chills a little bit. Yeah. That was right. Like how special. Yeah, it was Absolutely. pretty cool. Yeah. You don't always get to thank the person who does that for you, right? But I I had that 
privilege. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's dig into your work. Can you tell us what is Yossified Shakespeare? Okay, so Yossified Shakespeare is what happens when you layer filters of millennial nostalgia on top of the cultural object that is Shakespeare. So when we think about Yossification, we are thinking about this phenomenon where you take a cultural object and you glamify it or give it a glow up, um, usually using aesthetics that are very close to or matching the aesthetics of drag. Um, So it becomes queerer, it becomes um, more glamazon, it becomes larger than life. And then when you do that with Shakespeare, you get Yossified Shakespeare. Right. And this, I mean, and also this goes back to, you know, drag culture with ballroom culture and black and brown communities in Mm -hmm. New York City and beyond. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting is how in, I guess it was 2021 when the Yossify bot came out. Something like that. Yeah. Right. So in 2021, people started using the app Facetune to Yossify different, you know, celebrities or paintings or, you know, cultural figures. And this Yossify bot showed up on Twitter and the Yossify bot would Yossify, you know, the Mona Lisa, for instance, or actually, you know, Will Shakespeare himself. And so that's kind of where this idea came from, right? This ballroom culture legacy, this very, very online internet, not even a micro community. I mean, this is a quite large, you know, group of people doing this work, right? Yossifying different objects. And so we just started thinking about what that would look like if it was Shakespeare, right? And how we can use this lens of Yossified Shakespeare to understand uh, RuPaul's Drag Race and different drag queens performing, you know, Shakespeare, Diana, right? On RuPaul's Mm -hmm. Drag Race or something like Fat Ham on Broadway right now and how that is a piece of Yossified Shakespeare or even things on TikTok or different, you know, social media apps. And again, this is a legacy. This is not like a new phenomenon. This is something that we can trace back to the 70s and 80s, maybe even further. And I have to shout out my student, Alex Novak, who was the person who coined this phrase, Yossified Shakespeare. I was directing a production of Twelfth Night at the University of Buffalo, and it had a very kind of Yossified aesthetic. Um, We used a lot of like pop music, Madonna, Queen, etc. There was a whole dance number where Orsino (laughs) well that was no that was Malvolio (laughs) he stripped down to yeah Malvolio stripped down to his yellow stockings cross gartered it to I'm too sexy it was this whole like journey for him before admission intermission but like the opening of the show was Orsino forcing his whole court to be his backup dancers to somebody to love the closing jig was to um, dance with somebody so we had this music thing that was happening throughout the show and Alex who played Sir Andrew came up to me at a rehearsal and was like you're yassifying Shakespeare and I was like what does that mean and (laughs) to his credit he explained it to me like I was an old (laughs) and (laughs) but you're hip you're hip Daniel (laughs) I mean I'm on TikTok now (laughs) we look something you should know about Danielle and I is we are aggressively online millennials and so this research just kind of marries everything we do. <laughs> I feel like it's dream research as an also aggressively online millennial. Yeah. And I mean, I think so much of an academia, like if we're thinking like capital A academia is, it's the opposite of what we're doing, right? It's very, you have to be studying these classical texts or these things that have been written about or these things that have been studied, you know, in the halls of academia. And we are like, no, let's talk about like some drag queens on TikTok. Like that's what we're doing. <laughs> it- we can do that because like it came from a space where well anyone can do that but it came from a space with us where we were both kind of tired of playing the traditional academic game it wasn't getting us anywhere and we also were not having fun so you know we're trying to have fun yeah (laughs) yeah well that also sounds like it's in the spirit of Shakespeare anyways because the more you take apart his plays the more you realize it's all pop culture references it's all stuff going on in early modern culture so you're probably just expanding the legacy anyways of Shakespeare's theater. Exactly. It all ties back into the way this cultural object's been used throughout the decades, the millennia since it was created. And I think that we do a disservice to these texts when we put them behind the museum glass. Mm -hmm. And if we're not playing and having fun with them, we're not doing the thing that Shakespeare was doing. And also 
we're not enjoying it. So if we're going to change this paradigm of like, how do we get people interested in these texts so that they don't need to have the experience that Trevor and I both had, and I'm sure other people have, I know my students have had it. It starts with, well, where's the joy? Where's the fun? You know, what's, what's happening here that's important and relevant because we feel they're very important and relevant. You just need to get out of the frame of mind that they're these like precious objects to be kept under a bell jar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've touched on some of Shakespeare TikTok already, but your article entitled Everyone in Illyria is by You Cowards, Shakespeare TikTok, <laughs> Twelfth Night, and the Search for Queer Utopia, which is maybe like one of the best titles of an academic article I've ever mm-hmm. found. It discusses how the Shakespeare TikTok community or Shakes Talk creates content that transposes the characters and plays of Shakespeare into new contexts, specifically short videos with trending audio clips. And can you describe some examples for our listeners who might not be as familiar or who may not be on TikTok or might be stuck in some part of a For You page that doesn't come across Shakespeare TikTok as much as I do? A very sad corner of TikTok that would be. And first of all, Elise, thank you so much for your video um, where you're reading by a creek. It was so picturesque. Uh, And the shout out to our work. And another thing, it's everyone in Illyria is by you absolute cowards. No. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, Danielle, you want to take it away? Uh, We have to shout out No Fear Shakespeare for that title because it was a caption to one of their videos. Uh, We do cite it in the article, but I feel like we need to mention it when we bring it up in in conversation as well. And it was one of those things where it was the filler title for a while. And then we just were like, it. why not? <laughs> yeah. Like, let's just yeah. go for the gold. So examples of what we were seeing, the titular TikTok, if you can call it that, is a bunch of these shakes talkers uh, hanging out to a while ago. There was a trending sound on TikTok called uh, Kiss Me More by an artist named Doja Cat, where there was a part of the song where it goes ding and like, most folks were using that ding to do like a, it was like a thumbs up, right? It was the straight the ding. TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For straight talk, it was the thumbs up. But these content creators were making the point that like Twelfth Night is queerer than queer, which we wholeheartedly agree with, obviously. Um, so at the ding, they did this like you know lip wrist flop over motion. It plays into the limpress stereotype that obviously is problematic in certain ways, but. These creators used that, and most of them themselves are outwardly queer. So I'm not, I can't say they're appropriating the limp wrist because it's it's theirs to use. Yeah, reclaiming, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was sort of the one that got us down the rabbit hole. Um, but we found a few others since. We also have to shout out 10K Shakespeare, who doesn't get a citation in this particular article, but she will. We have a chapter coming out. I think my favorite gender play things she's doing there's a sound trend that's going around where it's like eloise it's like who is the little girl who lives at the plaza hotel and then there's this guy that comes in and is like i'm eloise and (laughs) and 10k shakespeare is there and it's like when flute gets cast as thisby in a midsummer night's dream right like Mm -hmm. uh i'm i'm flute and i'm not a girl right like So that one is another one of my favorites in recent times. And what's so remarkable about these TikToks is you think this niche Shakespeare humor is going to not have, go viral or not have a lot of views. And these, the more niche people get, it seems the better the videos actually do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is super interesting because even me, I mean, I've published books on Shakespeare, right? And I'll be like, who the, who the F is this? (laughs) Like, Like the characters are so like down the rabbit hole, right? It's something that is so for this Shakespeare community. So it's super interesting to me. So your article focuses on how the Shakespeare community engages with Twelfth Night in particular. And we kind of touched on Twelfth Night is queer as hell. What is it about that play that makes it just really easily transferable to TikTok and easily yossified, in your opinion? So for me... Twelfth Night, I have always, whenever I think about Twelfth Night and when I thought about Twelfth Night as an actor... The minute you start to think about the fact that all of these characters are extremely young, the things that happen in Twelfth Night make a lot more sense. Like their frontal cortexes are not yet developed. 
maybe you could argue that Sir Toby Belch is a little bit older, but like Twelfth Night makes the most sense to me if you put it in a high school, because the kinds of things that are happening in this play, the kinds of miscommunications, the kinds of ways these characters behave when they're in love, when they're grieving, when they've lost someone, when they don't know what to say to the person they like, when they are trying to hide something and are maybe doing too good a job at hiding something, but really wish the other person would figure out what they're hiding. Like these are not adult problems necessarily. <laughs> no, this is what I deal with as a high school teacher. I feel like I'm getting some you know, PTSD right now, Danielle. <laughs> right. So like the minute I started, cause I've played Olivia and I've played Mariah. And if you think about these characters as adults, their actions make no sense. But if you reframe and you think about it, like happening in a locker room, suddenly it makes all kinds of sense. And to me, that connection to a Gen Z aesthetic is kind of baked into this text. So Twelfth Night on its surface is already kind of primed for the pumps of TikTok. And then couple that with the fact that this play is queer as hell, like layers of dramaturgy underneath this like white cishet thing that people put on top of Twelfth Night that are screaming, (laughs) right? And I think that a lot of the people who do want us to put Shakespeare under the bell jar would like to lean into that white cishet idea and the fact that like romance does kind of normalize itself by the end of act five, but like question mark, does it really? And normalize, I I mean, in terms of like conforming to social norms, not necessarily that queerness is wrong or unnormal, but the fact that that part of the show very often gets kind of pushed down under if you can go for the straight agenda means that there's all of this stuff that's bubbling up to the surface and TikTok loves that, right? That's what TikTok feeds off of. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the what you're talking about with the aesthetics or the, like, the core of Twelfth Night totally matches TikTok culture, right? If we're thinking of the idiosyncratic humor the use of drag, right? Drag, I write about this in my one of my forthcoming books about how on TikTok, drag is part of the culture, right? I put a blanket, not a blanket, or a blanket, it could be a blanket, a towel on my head, and that signifies that I'm playing a woman, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, certain everyday objects mean more than they actually are. So it's this form of like TikTok drag that these, you know, shakes talkers are actually engaging with to make fun of or make fun with. Twelfth Night. And so I think it's it's super fascinating. And I think Twelfth Night being one of those, you know, an entry point into Shakespeare for a lot of young people. I just, my high school, some they did a 20-minute Twelfth Night a few weeks ago, right? And that was the first time these students had done Shakespeare. And they were like, yes. And they did the straightest, like most heteronormative, like cutting of Twelfth Night. I was like, this is bizarre. And they were all trans. <laughs> it was like a group of trans high school students are like, let's go, let's play this the straightest we can. But we're seeing all that on TikTok as well. So Twelfth Night is sort of like, and I think, you know, for especially if you're like a young Shakespeare lover or really coming into your Shakespeare journey, the whole gender play of Twelfth Night is just, it's it's really ridiculous. And it's fun. It gives you a lot of room to play and to be silly, right? Which again is another, mm-hmm. you know, core part of TikTok, that silly culture, just like stupid fun. I think it's also one of the more accessible shows. Oh, totally, totally. We're not talking about like geopolitical Antony and Cleopatra where you need like hundreds of years of history to understand what the problem actually is. That's the next episode of the podcast. Right, yeah, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) But I'm also thinking about how she's the man is both night. I think there's something to what you guys are saying about like the entry level should be fun and playful and exciting. Yeah, I know you guys talk about that a little bit. Totally, because if you think about like she's the man, arguably the most fun part of that film besides Channing Tatum is the idea that Channing Tatum doesn't know that that's a woman, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's mm-hmm. so obvious, right? And um, I don't know, it's just, it's fun. And I, I think that's what young people are really grasping onto in Twelfth Night and different adaptations of Twelfth Night. And we see that throughout the TikTok archive of different Twelfth Night TikToks. Yeah, I'm a gender being a construct. It's the perfect yeah. way to play off of those things. Yeah. And Twelfth Night is campy as hell, right? It's like, oh, let's get drunk and sing loud songs and keep everybody mm-hmm. awake, right? Like it's- there's I just call so that m- Saturday night. <laughs> right, well, but like that's 
also part of the accessibility, right? Like this is stuff we understand. You don't need to like layer on top to get what the problem is here. And then it just, it just screams like camp yossify me. <laughs> it's messy too, you know, and TikTok mm. is messy and messy's fun. Mm -hmm. Something that I've been thinking about as we've been talking is that one theme that's kind of emerging from our conversation is that accessibility with Shakespeare can be tied to enjoyability of Shakespeare and keeping it fun, light, enjoyable um, is really key. There's so much thought put into as theater practitioners, how do we make an audience understand and get Shakespeare? And a lot of it is, well, at first, are they enjoying the story that we're telling? Do they enjoy what they're watching? And TikTok is um, very enjoyable, according to my phone screen time reports. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, like you access that brain chemical and then like the audience is with you, right? I feel like accessibility as a buzzword is overused, I think, in Shakespeare circles because like, of course, it needs to be accessible, but so does every other piece of theater that you do. Mm -hmm. Like a theater season is chosen specifically because it will get butts in seats. And part of that is how much this series of stories is going to speak to the audience you're dealing with and the choices you're going to make about these stories that will help speak to the things they deal with on a daily basis. So when we overemphasize accessibility with Shakespeare, I think we also overemphasize the idea that it is alien, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if we have to make it accessible, then it's not already accessible. Like, or we, we patronize our audience with right. the idea of like, this is somehow foreign or difficult for the audience more so than it is for the people who are working on the text. And something you said at least earlier about understanding is so many times you see people say they didn't like a Shakespeare play or Shakespeare at all. And it goes back to a lack of understanding what they actually witnessed, right? They don't mm -hmm. quite grasp the plot or the characters or the dramatic arc or whatever it might be. And I think that's what makes this archive of Twelfth Night Shakespeare so interesting. Shakespeare TikToks, excuse me, is the idea that because of the use of TikTok aesthetics, TikTok trends, TikTok different audios or memes that are happening on the platform, the four of us can watch something and all grasp something very different from it. And it can be the most niche Shakespeare humor, but because of the audio or the way the text is or whatever it might be, people that do not know Shakespeare at all can get something out of it, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's accessible. There's your word. And uh, it plays to different literacies, right? There's multiple literacies happening on TikTok and the Shakespeare you know, TikTok community is no stranger to that. I love that because I'm going back to being like, oh, early modern history. His audiences were also groundlings all the way up to the court and kings and queens. So that's marvelous yeah. for getting people yeah. engaged in Shakespeare. Yeah. And if you think about like the best art, whether it's visual art, theater, film, is something that plays well to multiple audiences, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm thinking about Hamilton, for instance. Hamilton, at the height of Hamilton, right? In 2016 mm -hmm. or so, you could have the most Trump-supporting MAGA Republican go see Hamilton and the most leftist person that you knew at the same production, and they would both enjoy it and have something very different from it, right? They, they understand mm -hmm. different themes in it. They see it entirely through different lenses. And that to me was always fascinating, but that's what's happening essentially on TikTok, right? So on and so forth. I think it's so strange to me that people freak out when they don't understand a single, like one thing in Shakespeare, right? Somehow that derails this train. But if we go back to Hamilton, the first time you see Hamilton, there's no way you understand every single thing that's happening on that stage. They're talking too fast. It's Speak for yourself, not... Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. You got every word of guns and ships, Trevor. I did not. I did not. I did not. <laughs> it took me a few listens. Right. But, but we can accept that when a character is rapping for some reason. But the, the way our education system has primed us to think about Shakespeare if for some reason we miss a speech in Hamlet, it's it's derailed, right? Like, oh, mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. I'm, I can't get back into it. That And that barrier is what we need to think about if we're really going to think about accessibility. Like, how can you create the comfort level with your audience that like, oh, okay, didn't get it this time. Going to have to come back next time. Let's see when I can pick up the train, right? Yep. When I was in college, I would 
do projects on Shakespeare and his time and his eyes weren't sitting and paying attention to every word. That's why we're getting lost is because this is supposed to be happening in a baseball stadium where we're getting up and going to the bathroom or there's an orange cellar or something else happening next to us that we're getting distracted and then having to come back in and re-engage. And that's why does Shakespeare repeat himself so much? Because people were constantly having to re-engage with what was going on and he would have to re-explain everything multiple times. No, I love that. And it reminds me of my favorite Shakespeare experiences have always been like a Shakespeare in the park, right? Where mm -hmm. I'm picnicking, I've got wine, I've got cheese, I'm with friends and I'm half paying attention. But by the end of the night, I feel like I've gotten a full experience. Same idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this obsession is uh, an introduction of the 19th century when um, print books started to become a thing that people could afford and have. And reading Shakespeare, like the literary Shakespeare tradition became an important mark of status in the upper class. Um, this is actually a lot what my book is about, but fun story. So Edwin Booth, the brother to John Wilkes Booth, was once shot at by an audience member mid-performance because what they would do in the 19th century is they would bring their book to watch the show and follow along in the text so that they would get every single word. Well, Edwin Booth was famous for creating his own editions, his own acting editions, because clearly he knew better than everyone else. And so this audience member uh, was packing and Booth was so far off the script that this audience member got frustrated, stood up and took a shot at him. You know, acting is a very dangerous profession. <laughs> so Danielle, you're being very shy. Tell us about your book really quickly. Oh, okay. So my book is called Theaters of Value. And it is about how over the course of the 19th century, New York City theater makers figured out how to buy and sell the commodity that is Shakespeare and how crafting this cultural commodity is pretty deeply linked to uh, nation building and how the United States became a thing. Where do we pre-order this book? Um, so <laughs> <laughs> it's forthcoming with the State University of New York Press. I will have more information uh, soon. It's out for a clearance read right now. So end of June, early July, I should have some more information about like pipelines. <laughs> yeah. And I've read a few chapters, given a little feedback on a few chapters, and this is some good stuff, y'all. What can I say? I love New York City. <laughs> it's the greatest city in the world. Damn right. <laughs> this episode is equally a Hamilton episode as well at this point. Yay, Hamlet. <laughs> I was just about to say that, Trevor. <laughs> We're on the same page here. Yeah. <laughs> of course, then we have to like call out the explicit Shakespeare reference in Hamilton, right? Mm -hmm. Someone, anyone, Trevor, do you know it? Um, I know it. I'm not going to sing it today though, because I don't <laughs> want to go up on my lines. They call me Macbeth, right? Yes. Hamilton compares himself to Macbeth and some people point to that actually being a turning point because he's saying the name Macbeth in a theater that potentially also is the inciting incident for the downfall in terms of plot, um, which I'm like, there's, there's a couple of things beforehand, but just he, a few. Yeah. <laughs> but he, yeah, he compares himself and his ambitions to Shakespeare's Macbeth. Yeah. He compares a few of the characters to different to you know, Macbeth Macduff, characters. Yeah. yeah Dunsinane. Yeah. yeah. That's my favorite song in Hamilton. My dearest Angelica, tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. I trust you'll understand the reference to another Scottish tragedy without my having to name the play. They think me meant there that. You are an ocean away. There you You'll go. Only be an ocean away. <laughs> I'm a big musical theater nerd, and so is Danielle. <laughs> we we have definitely had random sing-alongs during writing time because that's just what happens sometimes. Because you need it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whatever gets the job done, y'all. Yeah. Also a big musical theater nerd. We've talked about Twelfth Night. We've briefly talked on about a few other plays, but are there any other plays that you think really deserve a Yossified Shakespeare treatment and haven't gotten them yet? So we firmly believe that every Shakespeare play deserves the Yossified Shakespeare treatment. But we can also look to, and Danielle, I'm sure we'll have some other ideas here, but we, the play that we are very excited about right now is Fat Ham. Mm -hmm. which is the Pulitzer Prize winner for drama in 2022 and currently playing on Broadway, has a best 
play Tony nomination and it has some regional productions popping up around the country in the next season. Um, and this is a big black fat queer at a riff on Hamlet. And we have not seen it, but we are dying to see it. We just don't live in New York. And yeah, if anyone's listening and wants to send us to New York to see Fat Ham, we will be glad to do that. Uh, but we've had a bit of a, like a TikTok romance, romance, <laughs> I don't know, friendship with the Fat Ham social media folks. And we're very excited about what's happening there and especially excited about their their social media presence with the disco balls and the glitter. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it is un unabashedly like queer presence they're having over there. Yeah, They've got like a disco Yorick. Courtney. Yes. It's yes. one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. So spoilers, I'm directing Henry six part two in the spring. So uh, I'm still thinking over <laughs> what this is going to look like. It's going to look very different than my production at 12th night, obviously, but still leaning into the aesthetics uh into my aesthetics and this sense of fun and like what can we do so i think it can be done with any show oh yeah there's yeah yeah, yeah coriolanus yes you anthony just cleopatra <laughs> why not Titus andronicus oh. <laughs> there are no limits yes. the limit does not exist when it comes to yasifying the, limit does, the, limit, the limit does not exist <laughs> We have another article that just came out in Studies in Musical Theater about Anne Juliet, uh, which is also a Yassified Shakespeare mm -hmm. piece of culture. But in it, we make a reference, several references to Mean Girls. At the very end of the introduction, we say, get in, loser, we're going shopping. And the editors, the copy editors, were just so confused. They were like, why are you insulting your reader? Like, what is this reference? And so we had to add, add a footnote. We're like, this is a reference to Mean Girls. If you don't get it, stop reading the article and go watch Mean Girls and come back. And then we make a, another reference to Mean Girls. We add the footnote. By this point, you should just stop, you know, again, go watch Mean Girls. Mm -hmm. It's like Mean Girls is a compulsory viewing experience. To understand to our writing, you must watch <laughs> yeah. Mean Girls. Formative. It's formative, exactly. Mm -hmm. Which could also be a very loose adaptation of Julius Caesar. So yes. Yeah, absolutely. It all comes back. <laughs> mm -hmm. It does. But we like to have fun. I mean, at the end of the day, like whether we're on TikTok or we're writing and it could be very like scholarly writing and we're trying to have fun. Like this should be something that we enjoy, something that brings, you know, fun to our lives. And also like Danielle and I feel like we're just like two tweens on AIM, AOL, Instant Messenger, chatting away at night, you know? <laughs> Also big believers in the idea that academic writing should not be impenetrable and that a lot of times it gets a little too too much Stuffy. like yeah. yeah it's not I hate to say accessible but no a little too like tower on a hill yeah. yeah I think both Danielle and I our goal has always been anyone should be able to read what we write anyone should yeah. be able to read what we write and understand it and grasp grasp what's happening and get something out of it but so much of academic writing, as we all know, is not that way. And so every step of the journey, we've been really thinking about how to make this something that we enjoy doing and also something that we think a wide range of you know, audiences will be able to relate to or get something out of. I think also when you can write clearly about complex ideas, you understand them better. Mm -hmm. If you're relying on jargon or multisyllabic words in every other sentence, you are not your brain is not working on a level that is really explaining this well. It's not a flex to write incomprehensible paragraphs, right? It's frankly, I think a little embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I when Elise and I do our research, I'm always like, let's just redefine this so that our listeners have an idea of what this even means. Right. It's unnecessary. There is nothing that you can think that's so complicated that you could not explain it to an intelligent eight-year-old. And my book is a doorstop. It's a 90,000 word doorstop. It took me 10 years to write, but I wrote it with the idea that an intelligent high schooler should be able to follow every sentence. And that means that more people can read it. So hopefully more people will. And that's something that sort of guides this project as well. Like, not only should you be able to understand our writing, but like, maybe you can enjoy it too. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and bringing it back to TikTok, that's what is so exciting to us about putting our research on TikTok is the opportunity to have hundreds or thousands of people engage with our, our writing, our scholarship, which is something that so many academics are missing out on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, we will be like, oh, I got a hundred downloads on my article and yay. No, like a hundred views on TikTok is nothing, right? <laughs> so it's a game changer. Yeah. yeah. The American Society for Theater Research Conference is like, it's not the biggest conference in the field, but it's like one of the big ones. Arguably, think, yeah. Yeah, they had what, 500 people at the conference, 500 attendees when we were in New Orleans. And so if you think about it, 500 people at one of the largest conferences in our subfield, we've had TikTok videos go out to 30,000, I think, is our our largest view. And that's an anomaly. Like not all of our videos are going out to 30,000 people, but regularly our ideas are being articulated to audiences that are larger than this conference. And I think that when we belittle platforms like TikTok, we lose sight of the sense that like actually way more people are seeing and responding with our work than more traditional scholarly venues, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so much of this goes back to the way that TikTok has always been seen as a youth space and it's been belittled by adults, right? It's less mm-hmm. than, it's quote unquote, just TikTok. It's a silly place where tweens are, tweens are twerking. That was a fun one. Tweens are twerking. But 12 it's so tweens are twerking. 12 <laughs> tweens are twerking. <laughs> And I'm not going to lie, I have uh, twerked on TikTok before. I do my own you know, separate TikTok thing as well. But um, for years, TikTok was this teenage affinity space. And so adults immediately dismissed it in the same way that adults have always been, maybe not always, but at least in the last few you know, decades have been very dismissive of youth cultures. And so we see that with academia as well, the way that you know, we, we know scholars who are brilliant people who are doing incredible work who, when we tell them about what we're doing on TikTok, they kind of look at us like we've lost our damn minds, right? Or they're like, oh, that's cute. You know, that kind of condescending, you know, vibe. And it's, it's exciting for us, right? And so we've been using TikTok in a way that helps us think through what we're doing in this book, Yossified Shakespeare, sort of like a lit review in some ways, also talking about topics that interest us. You might've seen recently, we had the Shakespeare plays as chain restaurants. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm a big fan. <laughs> Which we literally dramaturged one morning on Zoom. Like we took it very seriously. We talked about it for like 40 minutes and we put a lot of love and care into those chain restaurant Shakespeare combinations. And that doesn't do anything for our book, but it has been something that really helps us to get like in that mindset of we are creating public facing content about Shakespeare, which is going to propel our, you know, more traditional forms of writing as well. It's been so much fun. Yeah. I wrote some uh, like additional chains and plays that you, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. we, we will have more content coming yeah. out soon because I know a lot of people were very upset with us because we didn't cover everything. Oh, <laughs> We're yeah. working through the canon, everyone. <laughs> you didn't get all 30 something plays into the one three minute video. How dare you? Well, there were a few too. We're like, okay, Othello. Actually, we're going to stay clear of Othello. Mm-hmm. We do not want to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that makes also, sense. I, you know, I feel like we're going to run out of chain restaurants before we run out of Shakespeare plays. The world is our oyster. We have, in my moleskin, I keep like video ideas. And I was on an airplane to Buffalo to see Danielle. And we actually, we never met in person until last year, by the way. Yes, the vast majority. We're internet friends. Yeah, the vast majority of our scholarship has done like <laughs> over the internet. And also like we went from semi-anonymously meeting on Zoom in like a mutual academic space to like texting each other every day in a very scarily short amount of time. <laughs> you know, the beauty of the internet. Um, but what I was saying was when I was on my way to visit Danielle in Buffalo, I was on the airplane just like jotting down my ideas for videos. And then, you know, I batched the videos together. But I was like, Shakespeare plays as Starbucks drinks. Shakespeare plays as, you know, uh, gas stations. And I had all these different like ridiculous ideas. And I'm like, no one's going to want to watch this. And then, of course, we post the chain restaurants. And, you know, it has over a thousand views, which for us is like good. Mm -hmm. I think for anyone on Shakespeare talk, that's pretty good. Yeah, right. That's like solid. That's solid, you know, and it's it's super um, ridiculous. And we, but we lean into that like TikTok aesthetic 
the idiosyncratic humor, the self-deprecating humor, the silly stuff. It's super interesting and fun. Mm -hmm. I know I've said everything's been interesting and fun, but it is. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fun too, because that's like very Shakespearean way to look at things anyways, because his plays are all like silly, strange references. Like, so I think that you're doing the bard's work, you know. The bard's work. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have a, a video coming up that is us going hard for the bard and we are powerlifting. I forgot about that video. <laughs> we are grunting and saying, hey, Shakespeare plays like Hamlet, <laughs> Henry the Sixth Part Two. <laughs> I think the best part of that video was I was like, actually, we were actually working out when we made it. Like we didn't just- Oh film. yeah. So I was shooting my sets to send to my coach and like <laughs> shouting things while I was lifting. And so he got the video of me shouting like, <laughs> Look, anything for the bard. So we've been talking about your writing and your process and Danielle has some books coming. Trevor, you've written a book. And I know Danielle has also started a TikTok series about the different types of academic writing. So tying it back to TikTok. For our audiences who may not know, what is the difference in the writing and publishing process between an article versus an academic book other than length? Honestly, it depends on what your goals are, whether it's how big the idea is or how fast you want it to come out. So for instance, if we review a film, like 10 Things I Hate About You, say it came out tomorrow and we wanted to write about it, we would want to write about it somewhere public facing, right? Somewhere online where it can come out soon, be part of the conversation. Whereas if we're thinking about a book, we're talking about a big idea. We might be thinking about, you know, Shakespearean adaptations in film, Mm -hmm. right? Teen films that are riffing off of Shakespeare. That's a large idea, right? That's something that's going to be an entirely different project. And so it, it has its own timeline. This article. So we just talk about like what we've done. We started working on this in May, 2022 on the article on Twelfth Night. And when we finished it in June or July, 2022, we took a pause. And then we realized, one, we enjoyed working together. And two, we had more to say. And so we decided we're going to write a book because we kept thinking like, oh, this is happening in here. This is happening on this platform. This this person did this. And all of this goes together under this umbrella of what we call Yossified Shakespeare. And at the end of the day, be a series of articles. It could be a series of blog posts. It could be just TikTok videos talking about it. But we decided to take all of these things and this umbrella and put them in this book where we are arguing something and every chapter is going back to that central argument. And so when we were thinking about this, we were trying to think about bigger. It's a big picture. We're talking about a very big picture. Now, along the way, we have articles like the one you read has come out and we have the one on Anne Juliet, which is more like a critical dialogue. And then we have a few public facing things that'll be coming out soon. And so it really depends on what are the goals and what are the needs, right? And if we're thinking about, you know, Danielle is a tenure track professor now. And so the reality is me, I teach high school, I adjunct at different universities. Um, I can publish wherever I want and it kind of doesn't matter. I do it for my own desire. Uh, Whereas if you are on the tenure track at any university in the country, there are expectations in terms of rankings of journals or the prestige of a press. And so for Yossified Shakespeare, we talked about, it could be a graphic novel, it could be a a chapbook, it could be all sorts of things. And we landed on, I'm going to knock on wood, I don't want to jinx ourselves, uh, but we do have a very, the top university press for theater studies books that we're going to pitch this to, uh, because we want it to be legible to tenure promotion, you know, files at the end of the day. Well, in terms of publication pipeline, like if I think about the back end, you kind of have different layers of peer review. So if, if you don't know about academic publishing, there's sort of two main buckets of work. You have your academic monograph, which is your book, and then you have these articles. Both of those things are going to undergo peer review. And depending on the press you work with for your book, different sections of your book might undergo peer review at different times. So for an article, you effectively finish the article, you send the whole article to the journal, the journal sends it out in a process that's called double blind peer review, double blind, meaning the people looking at it don't know who you are, and you don't know who they are. And usually the editor is going to try to match 
the article with peer reviewers whose expertise will complement the article in some way so that they know what they're talking about when they give you feedback. Then the peer reviewers, usually it's two of them, will say, okay, um, this article should be accepted as it is. That almost never happens. You should accept it with minor revision, and they'll give the author feedback about what that revision should be. Uh, you should accept it with major revision, again, with feedback about what that should be, or you should reject it. You should not print this article. And then the editor will interface that feedback back to the author, because again, this is double blind, and you go from there. So it's it's a fairly fast pipeline to get something published. I mean, the, the article we published was Shakespeare Bulletin when at the speed of light, we wrote it very quickly, was sent out like the first people who were asked to peer reviewed it agreed to peer review it. They got their peer reviews done extremely quickly. Like this is unheard of in academic publishing right now. The pandemic has really put a giant monkey wrench in how much time it takes to do all of this. Because again, this is free labor. Like no one's getting Mm -hmm. paid for any of this. It's just service to the profession, things you're expected to do as part of your job. So people say no regularly to protect their time. So it's a question of like, who's available to read the article. Then for a book... You usually will write a proposal, a book proposal, and shop that proposal with like a sample chapter or two to various presses, and they will come back with interest. Generally, like some presses will send the proposal out for peer review, but usually they don't send it out for peer review until you do the full manuscript. And if a press wants to really commit to your book after they read your proposal, they can send you what's called an advanced contract, which is fairly rare, but will be like, we are committed to really giving this book serious consideration. An advanced contract is not binding. It doesn't mean they have to publish it. It just means that they're really, really, really interested in it. An editor could offer an advanced contract, or they could just say like, yeah, send me the manuscript when it's done. And part of your proposal would be, here's when I expect the manuscript to be done. And then when the manuscript's done, you send it to the press. The press sends the manuscript out for peer review. Similar system is with an article, so double blind, usually two readers. But as you can imagine, peer reviewing a book takes significantly more time than peer reviewing an article. And then the peer reviewers will come back with the same sort of ranked feedback, except as is minor revision, major revision, reject. Then the author, depending on what they get, will either write a note saying, okay, thank you for this feedback. Here's how I plan to address things. Or they will revise if there's like major revisions requested. Then the editor takes that to the board at the press and then the board sort of okays it. And then you get like your official contract. I mentioned with my book, it's currently out for a clearance read. This happens with first time authors a lot. What that means is my book is under contract forthcoming. They asked me for some minor revisions. I did them. The press requested that one of the people who peer reviewed my book read it again after I do the revisions just to like make sure I did the things I said I was going to do. And then it enters the publication pipeline, which is a whole other thing. So despite the fact that my book is written, we probably won't see it in print until at least 2024. It's a very long process. Hmm. Yeah. And the only thing I'll add, and that was brilliantly summed up there to Danielle, but the the publication production pipeline is uh, usually nine months to 12 months. Nine months would be fast. And I'll say that I think my book, Renegades, which came out in 2021, from what I know is like the fastest book that's ever been been published. I literally started working on it in March 2020, and it was published July like 3rd, 2021, right? And that was like an insane timeline, and it was still, you know, 17 months, right? Um, so even 17 months, I mean, that's like, I can't even believe that, actually. But it's a long process. And so a lot of times when you're thinking about where you want your ideas to come out, an article might be better because you want people to read it and engage with it in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. And even a public facing thing, even if it's something like Shakespeare and Beyond, the Folger, you know, um, blog, Mm -hmm. those sorts of things can get your ideas out much faster. And then, of course, you can take that idea and then use it for a book later. The other thing an article does because it comes out faster is it basically lets you pee on something, right? If there's a thing that you're interested in working on. You can sort of mark some territory and say like, hey, we're working on this. You know, this is what we're doing. Nobody else take it. Or if you do take it, let's talk, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you tell that we're both cat people? (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
So like we've been publishing articles. We're going to have another one coming out in the fall. It's just called Yossified Shakespeare, Borrowers and Lenders. That uh, Publishing articles, doing conference presentations, just like giving people a glimpse of this work to give them a sense that we're doing it. So if somebody does decide to take up, you know, a Shakespeare TikTok project and a couple of people have, they'll be in touch with us so we can talk and like figure out how productively everything dovetails rather than try and like stomp all over each other's territory, right? Because the idea is to create conversation, not to like own something. (laughs) And at the end of the day, all we're doing, whether it's writing blogs, writing peer-reviewed journal articles or TikToks or presenting at conferences is we're really trying to drum up interest and excitement about what we're working on, in this case, our book. So, you know, one of the comments we get a lot on TikTok is, when's the book come out? And we're like, whoa, give it some time, folks. (laughs) Slow your roll. (laughs) It's the same, yeah. (laughs) But it is exciting, like the uh, immediacy, I think, of TikTok, because what I would like to see through all the work Elise and I do is I want theater makers to actually apply a lot of the things that we're learning and, you know, put more of that thought into performance. And TikTok makes it much quicker to take those thoughts, apply them to a play, put that on stage, and then give that to audiences so that audiences are engaged with a more exciting Shakespeare than the classroom Shakespeare that, you know, drones on and on and on and on. So that's super exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. And I hope we start to see more theaters using TikTok that way. Because I think it's an opportunity that has existed since Web 2.0 began, but not a lot of folks, what was it, Lin-Manuel Miranda basically like pioneered that with his YouTube channel when he was, what was Mm -hmm. it, was it In the Heights or Hamilton? I don't. In the Heights. In the Heights. Yeah. And that's like, in terms of the history of theater, not that long ago. And yet we're still not seeing that kind of social media usage in conjunction with major productions. And we should be. And even like with college productions, our students are making TikTok. Like mm-hmm. the, it's happening. Why aren't we doing this together so that we can all take something more away, right? Why aren't we making stuff that the audience can look at when they filter in and they're sitting down what, waiting for the show to start or at intermission or whatever? It's such a productive use of the technology that we already have that is freely accessible, that has no barrier to entry for the creator or the audience. It just makes sense to me. Darn it. Gosh, darn it. And it's meeting the audience or the potential audience where they already are. It's not asking them to come in and experience. It's going to them. Yes. I think that's a really great note to end it on as well, that this is where a future in both theater and academia can be if we just take it seriously and don't write it off. And it can be fun and it can be accessible and we don't need to maintain like ivory towers on a hill we can meet people where they're at if we actually want them to engage with what we're doing, if that's the goal. If the goal is to keep people outside, then fine, we can keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, there's so many cool ways to invite people in. We should do it. Well, I'll officially say thank you both so much for your time today. This was a delight to actually meet you in simultaneous time. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Absolutely. This was fun. Yes. Danielle, Trevor, I will see you on TikTok in a little while. (laughs) Yes, Yes, Courtney. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make, but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patron, Liz Swafield-Gallegos. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare, anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened 
all the way to the end of the credits. Here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. Mine is from Passing Strange. And of course, the title Passing Strange is a riff off of Othello. And this is from the end of Act One, where youth, the main character, has just had this major moment of self-discovery in Amsterdam. Did I say it already, Mr. Franklin, that today in Amsterdam, they taught me how to wear my body. Today, I learned that even if it's ugly, man, you got to wear it like a gown. This is from Love's Labor's Lost, Act 4, Scene 3, said by Baroon. For valor is not love a Hercules still climbing trees in the Hesperides? Subtle as Sphinx, as sweet and musical as bright Apollo's lute strings with his hair, and when love speaks, the voice of all the gods makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. <laughs> 